All right. Our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from Ezekiel chapter 34. Uh, the whole chapter is good, but it's long. So we've taken uh, a few sections out of here uh, from Ezekiel 34. It all is talking about the Lord as the shepherd of his people. The first section, though, talks about how the shepherds that have gone before have not done well. And then there's a section in the middle talking about the flock and how they have not done well. But the parts we're going to read is about how God is the true shepherd who does really well. So before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you have made, and we thank you for your word that you have given to us. We pray that as we hear it read and proclaimed today, that we would, uh, God, that you would help us to learn what you'd have us to learn, that you would draw us close where you want us to be close, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, that you would encourage us, encourage us where we need to be encouraged, that you would refresh us where we need to be refreshed, and God, that you would continue to change us where we need to be changed. So we become more and more and more like Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Ezekiel chapter 34, for this, starting verse 11, for this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries. And I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. Skipping down to verse 25. As I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of savage beasts so they may live in the wilderness and sleep in the forests in safety. I will make them and the places surrounding my hill a blessing. I will send down showers in season. There will be showers of blessing. The trees will yield their fruit and the ground will yield its crops. The people will be secure in their land. They will know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the hands of those who enslaved them. They will no longer be plundered by the nations, nor will wild animals devour them. They will live in safety and no one will make them afraid. I will provide for them a land renowned for its crops and they will no longer be victims of famine in the land or bear the scorn of the nations. Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, the Israelites, are my people, declares the Sovereign Lord. You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Sovereign Lord. Turning then to 1 Peter 1 through 5. Nope. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 11. Had all the right numbers, just not in the right order. First Peter five, one through eleven.
Peter writes, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and a sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There is a creed that was written, oh, 30 years ago or so, that seems still pretty much right on track for where we are today. Uh, by, this is written by a man named Steve Turner. I shared it with you about two years ago, just in case some things have happened in the last two years and you've forgotten. We'll read it again. He says, We believe... This is not, by the way, the creed of the church. This is the creed of the culture we live in, as he puts it. So he says, We believe in Marx, Freud, and Darwin. We believe everything is okay as long as you don't hurt anyone to the best of your definition of hurt and to the best of your knowledge. We believe in sex before, during, and after marriage. We believe in the therapy of sin. We believe that adultery is fun. We believe that sodomy is okay. We believe that taboos are taboo. We believe that everything is getting better, despite evidence to the contrary. The evidence must be investigated, and you can prove anything with evidence. We believe there's something in horoscopes, UFOs, and bent spoons. Jesus was a good man, just like Buddha, Muhammad, and ourselves. He was a good moral teacher, though we think his good morals were bad. We believe that all religions are basically the same, at least the one we read was. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. (laughs) We believe that after death comes the nothing, because when you ask the dead what happens, they say, nothing. If death is not the end, if the dead have lied, then it's compulsory heaven for all, excepting perhaps Hitler, Stalin, and Genghis Khan. We believe in Masters and Johnson. What's selected as average, what's average as normal, and what's normal is good. We believe in total disarmament. We believe that there are direct links between warfare and bloodshed. Americans should beat their guns into tractors, and the Russians would be sure to follow. We believe that man is essentially good. It's only his behavior that lets him down. That is the fault of society. Society is the fault of conditions. Conditions are the fault of society. We believe that each man must find the truth that is right for him. Reality will adapt accordingly. The universe will readjust. History will alter. We believe that there is no absolute truth excepting the truth 
that there is no absolute truth. We believe in the rejection of creeds and the flowering of individual thought. If chance be the father of all flesh, disaster is his rainbow in the sky. And when you hear state of emergency, sniper kills ten, troops on rampage, whites go looting, bomb blasts school, it is but the sound of man worshiping his maker. Thirty years ago, thirty years ago, and yet here we are with it as could have been written last week. I read that in particular, that line where he began to chuckle, where it says that uh, Jesus was a good man, just like Buddha, Muhammad, and ourselves. He's a good moral teacher, though we think his good morals are bad. We believe that all religions are basically the same, at least the one we read was. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. <laughs> we have been in a series since Easter looking at who Jesus says he is. Because who Jesus is matters tremendously. And as we read that whole creed, you can see that what you believe about Jesus affects all the rest of it. In fact, when you look at those differences between all the religions, you say, oh, they're, they're all the same. They only differ on these things. Every single one of those things has to do with Jesus. In fact, what you do with Jesus will affect how you answer all those other issues of creation and heaven and hell and sin and salvation. And so, we have been looking at who it is that Jesus says that he is. Does he just claim to be a good moral teacher? And then we just have to wrestle with his morals. Or is he claiming something more than that? This morning we're looking at John chapter 10, uh, picking up in verse 11. We looked at the beginning of John 10 last week when Jesus begins this shepherd and sheep kind of analogy, but then he was talking about, he said he was the gate. You remember that? He was the gate. And so you have the whole sheep pen, and he said everybody else that comes in over the sides, there's only one legitimate entrance. You know, the shepherd will go through the gate. The sheep will go through the gate. But anybody who's coming in over the side is a thief and a robber. And any sheep that's being taken over the side is being stolen and is in for some trouble. And he says, but it's the gate. That is the only legitimate entrance. And then he says, I am the gate. The way that the Father comes to his people is through the Son. And the way that the people come to God is through the Son. So he said he was the gate. Well, he continues that analogy, but now he kind of takes it up another level. Um, yeah, we'll go ahead and just dive right in. John chapter 10, verse 11 and following, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. 
They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, He is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, These are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? That's a good question. There is something about shepherds that we see throughout the Bible. It seems like God has a fondness for shepherds. We see that with David, the shepherd boy, who then becomes the king. And if you remember when David is anointed as king, even his own dad didn't see a king in him. Oh, he's just the kid out watching the sheep. He's not of any importance. Samuel says, bring him in. And God says, yes, this is the one. And then we go on and we see that there, you know, you have David writing, the Lord is my shepherd. We see in Isaiah and Ezekiel both, God saying, I am going to shepherd my people. Like a shepherd shepherds his flock. And then we get on into the New Testament. And do you remember when, the, uh, when Jesus was born? And the angel shows up to announce the good news. you remember who he goes to? He goes to the shepherds. The shepherds that are out watching their flocks by night. And the angel comes and says, Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. But the news comes to the shepherds. David, the shepherd... The shepherds in, in and around Bethlehem, the people that everybody else sort of overlooked. And I think one of the great things about God saying that He is the shepherd who's taking care of His people, who knows them, they know Him, one of the great things about that is we even see it as the way He talks about shepherds themselves and the way He treats the shepherds, who everybody else overlooks, but God doesn't. The ones that get overlooked by everybody else. God says, you are special and you are worth my attention. And so he brings David in and says, you're going to be the king. And he goes to the shepherds outside of Bethlehem and he says, you need to hear first the message of the Savior. So, before we even dive into the rest of this, I want you to hear today that if you feel like you are in some role that is insignificant and nobody notices and it doesn't matter what you do because nobody ever cares and nobody sees it and You have someone watching over you who does care and who wants you to hear this message and who has given you great value. Now, so that's kind of our part as the sheep. (laughs) As the sheep, we have a shepherd who watches over us and cares for us, but it's more than just that. Jesus says that he is the good shepherd. This, by the way would have been shocking for the people that heard it. Remember who he's talking to. He's talking to the Pharisees. We saw that at the beginning of chapter 10. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. This group who knows the Old Testament really well. They've missed the point, but they know it. They think it has to do with what we can do to please God. And God says, no, no, no. It's about what I'm going to do to bring you to me. And so... When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, 
they're going straight back in their heads. You've got the passages in uh, Psalms, the Lord is my shepherd. You have Isaiah and you have Ezekiel where God has said repeatedly, I am the shepherd for my people. And then Jesus stands up and says, I am the good shepherd. That's a pretty big claim. This is not Jesus saying, I am going to, I've got some good ideas and, you know, maybe people should follow those. And if you follow those, who knows? You know, God might like that. No. When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, he has just been talking about, you know, I am the gate where the, the shepherd comes to the sheep and the sheep come to the shepherd through this gate, which is big enough in itself. And then when he says, I am the good shepherd, he's saying, I am God who has come to you. But more than just that, he says he's the good shepherd for two reasons. In verse 14, he says, because I know, uh, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. That's a good shepherd there. But in verse 11, and then repeated throughout this passage, besides just using shepherd language, there's one other thing that just keeps getting repeated again and again. And that so he lays down his life for the sheep. That is one of the things that sets him apart from everybody else. Because the hired hand doesn't do that. The hired hand is out there watching the sheep. They're not his sheep. He's, you know, in it for the paycheck. But if a wolf comes, sheep, you're on your own. Good luck with all that. I will report the losses to, to the shepherd when he comes back. But Jesus says, that's not the kind of shepherd I am. These are my sheep. And I will step in front of the danger. And I will take on the wolf that's coming. And I will lay down my life. And I will face death that they can live. And we know, because we've read the end of the story, this isn't just talk. This isn't just Jesus making a big claim and not able to back it up. But when he goes to the cross, he takes on himself what we all deserve. And he takes to himself the danger that faces us all. And he takes on the enemy that threatens us all. And yes, it kills him. But it's through that that we're saved. I keep saying even more than that. We have one more even more than that. He doesn't just say, I'm going to lay down my life. Because we see that. We see that happening from others in dangerous situations. And it's always inspiring. You hear the war stories of the soldier who runs out and, uh, and protects one of his fellow soldiers. And in doing so is killed. Or you hear about uh, teachers in schools where a shooter comes in. Or there's a tornado that takes, uh, takes out the building. And these teachers that will cover their students and take the bullet or take the hit from the collapsing building to save the lives of the students who aren't even their own children. And we hear these stories, and we are moved by them, and we are inspired by them, and then we say, what an amazing love is that? It's actually what Jesus said in John uh, 15. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And so we could look at Jesus on the cross and say, well, that's what he did. He just, he laid down his life for us. Which he did. But he didn't stop there. That would have been 
inspirational. And especially if we understood who he was that was doing that. But there's more. Verse 17 and 18. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Who else can do that? Who else can lay down their life who can die for someone else and then at will come back to life? Nobody can do that. Nobody can do that unless they are themselves the author of life, the giver of life. Jesus is making several large claims here that he is one with the Father. That he is one with the creator of life. That he is the shepherd over his people. That he is the one who knows them and they know him. And that when he gives his life, he also has the power to bring it back. This sets him apart from everyone else. <clears throat> now, we'll come back to that end part in a second. I'm going to skip down. Um, a couple months later, the Jews were still following Jesus around and curious about what all he was saying. And in verse 24, it says, they actually asked him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Really? I mean, at this point, in what we've read through, he has already said, I am the bread of life. It's through me that your life is sustained. He's already said, I am the light of the world. It's only through me that you have true knowledge. And he said, I am the gate for the sheep. I am the one way for you to come to the shepherd. And he also has said, I am the good shepherd. I mean, if these claims haven't been big enough, I don't know what else they're looking for. But at this point, they say, why don't you tell us plainly, are, are you the Messiah or not? So here's his answer. I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. There you have it. When we look at where we started with that creed and all the things that our culture believes today. And we say it all has to do with what we make of Jesus. He says, if you are my sheep, you will listen to my voice. I have told you who I am. And one of the ways I've told you who I am is not just by my words, but by my actions. You can look at the things that I've done and you can see nobody else does this kind of stuff. And it all looks like what the Father has done from the very beginning. Jesus has shown who he is. He has told who he is. And people still will say, I don't know. Did he really say? Is that who he is? Not because he hasn't said, but because they're not listening. So now we'll pick up the final verses in that other section where we began. It says, The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, He is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, These are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So that was a good question. And the reason why is there's something that had happened in chapter 9. We sort of skipped over that. 
In chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. It's by me that people can see what's really happening and what is, what is real. We skipped over chapter 9, and then in chapter 10, they say, can a man, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? In chapter 9, there's a story of Jesus and his disciples coming upon a man who was born blind, had never seen in his life. And Jesus heals him, gives sight to the blind, makes it so he can see. And so when he says, you know, don't you see the works that I'm doing? Isn't this the kind of thing that God, is, that God does? Only God gives sight to the blind. This is not the same thing as giving somebody a pair of glasses so they can see a little better. This is taking somebody who can't see at all and giving them sight that they've never had. Who does that? And yet, even with his actions, even with his words, the people who saw what he did, the people who heard what he said, were still divided. Some said, he's demon-possessed, he's raving mad. But others said, no, no, no. Now, there's something else with this guy. And those are actually the categories that C.S. Lewis pointed out in Mere Christianity. It's what's famously been called the Lewis Trilemma. Where he says, you cannot take a look at the things that Jesus said and the things that he did and say he was just a good moral teacher. You can't. Either he is who he says he is, or he wasn't. And he says, if Jesus wasn't who he says he is, if he says he's the one way to God the Father, if he says he's one with the Father... And he's not, either he knows he's lying, or he's crazy. Because nobody but a crazy person would say that if they weren't really who he is. Or they're evil and just lying and saying this knowing full well that that's not who he is. He said, on the other hand, but if you listen to Jesus, you see the things he does, he doesn't sound like a crazy person. And he's doing things that certainly aren't evil. And so the other option is that he's telling the truth. That he is who he says that he is. And so when we look at who Jesus says he is, when we see the things he does, when we hear what he says and the way that he identifies himself, rather than listening to what the culture says about him, when we go to him and actually look at this, we have to respond. We have to do something with Jesus. Do we dismiss him as evil or crazy and just go on about our way? Or do we fall at his feet, trust him to be our shepherd, to lay down his life for us that we can live with him forever? Those are the options. By the way, this idea of shepherding comes through again and again, not just in the sense of overseeing and making sure that things are taken care of, but there's a sense of the presence with the sheep. Every time you read about God being the shepherd, or when Jesus says he's the shepherd, there's always a sense of intimacy and closeness and being right there with you through it all. As you read Psalm 23, he says, the reason I'm not, uh, I don't get afraid when I'm even walking through the valley of the shadow of death, as the King James put it, or through um, the darkest gloom, depending on the translation. The reason I'm not afraid and all that is because you are with me. It's the presence of the one who loves you more than anyone else.
right there with you. The one who's willing to lay down his life for you. And the one who will give his life so that you can live. How do we respond to that? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.